Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Number 42, if you can believe it. I'm Cam Connor, along with my son, Chris. So I think we took like two months off, and yes, we can blame the pandemic. Uh, I know I got sick, my kids got sick. We didn't get corona, but we definitely got sicker than we have been for a long time. And Dad likes to record these face-to-face, so we are recording this, what is it, six feet apart from each other. I, I have a mask over my mouth. So uh, we did think it was time to start recording and bringing some new episodes back. So, Dad, how's the last two months been for you? Well, there's no doubt about it. It's been uh, pretty different. I'm still working. I think my last day of work is like uh, July sometime. Driving to work, I get in, get to work at about 6 in the morning. And uh, there's nobody on the road and nobody on the road coming home. It's a uh, it's a whole different world, and there's there's an adjustment right there. The the wife and I we're spending a lot of time together, and so far she hasn't killed me. So, it uh, it's there's an adjustment, and I don't know when things are going to turn around, but I do believe that the world is gonna is gonna change from uh, pre-pandemic. For sure. What about you, Chris? What have you been doing? So I've been homeschooling my seven-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old, and my wife and I work full-time, so uh, we're all fighting for the Zoom camera meetings, and even my three-year-old has Zoom meetings where she has to talk to her preschool teacher. But uh, I think you're burying the lead that you mentioned that you are done at the end of July. So you're finally done working, you're retiring, and so now what does that mean? You're open for availabilities for for whatever's next for you well i don't know what uh, if someone in the hockey world is interested yeah well i'm going to be on the if the golf courses open up this year in edmonton i'm going to be playing golf but um you know when i played hockey for a living and the summers came around you get two to three months off depending if you make the playoffs or you don't make the playoffs and i never had any problems occupying my time. I never sat around and just watched TV and got lazy. I worked out first thing in the morning, every morning. I enjoyed doing that. And then I always have enjoyed yard work. I, I really do. So I look outside and uh, I see my fence needs to be repaired. It needs to be painted. And, you know, I think I don't have a lot of skills um, but I'm I'm willing to work hard and do the things that I can do. So I think I think when my career is, is over in July, I've been told by the company that uh, you know they thank me for my services, and so I'll be I'll be finished in July, and it's going to be another chapter in my life for sure. So you mentioned no hockey over the summer for your career, obviously, but for for this summer, there's some rumors that. The NHL might be playing in a few select cities just to finish the season, but they'll be playing in probably empty arenas. So what are your thoughts of playing in an empty arena? I think it's going to be 
It's, there's an adjustment. There's no doubt about it that when you go for warm-ups and you hear the fans and uh, do the national anthem and you look up into the stands again and you feed off of the fans. You really, really do. I think, you know, there will be an adjustment. You're still going to try your best. But I don't know, you know, you practice as hard as you can, you know, in empty buildings. Now you got a, you know, a legitimate opponent across from you that you got to beat in an empty arena. I think once the puck's dropped and you start playing and you're going for your two points, I think it'll just take care of itself. But you know what, if you had a choice between fans and no fans, you definitely want to have fans in the building because I already said, you feed off that energy from the people sitting in the stands, whether they're booing you or cheering you. It's a, it's a real energy, and uh, I think the guys will have to make the adjustment. And again, once they start, then, uh, you know, it's going to be weird, but it'll be business as usual. So you asked for some questions before we started recording, so we will get to that. And you had a couple of teammates pass away that were pretty important to you. So I believe a teammate and a coach, if I'm not mistaken. So we are going to talk about that, answer some questions. There was an interesting tweet from uh, an account that's called 1980 Oilers Day by Day. And they actually go through every day that the Oilers played in um, 1980. And so they wrote, A year ago, Cam Connor scored an OT in a Habs win over the Leafs. Since that time, he's gotten food poisoning, contracted a misdiagnosed virus, claimed by the Oilers, broken his kneecap at training camp, broke his hand punching a helmet, been traded, and broken his hand again. So uh, was that probably the, the toughest year that you've played hockey? I really believe that was a turning point. With the Edmonton Oilers, nobody knew their very first year in the National League, you know, how well they were going to do and how strong this franchise was going to be. And I know I had all the tools that I could have contributed to this success. I could have been part of the famous Battle of Alberta with the Calgary Flames. Calgary had a tough team. Edmonton had a tough team. And they scrapped. Had I not, like you said, you know, got hurt so much that season, I think that was one of the reasons I got traded. Because at one point, when I did get back, I had, I was going to say, something like 21 points in 22 games. And then I did make a mistake on the ice, and it cost me dearly. And uh, Glenn Sather sat me on the bench for six, seriously 16 games in a row with hardly any shifts. And I ended up getting traded. And when you got a guy, and they, they described me in the paper as I had a black cloud following me. I came to uh, the training camp after having food poisoning. I got these this chromosome problems as I got diagnosed pretty well right at, right after training camp started. I hadn't skated all summer, and it was one thing after another after another. And I remember when I got to training camp, I oh, man, I was on the ice for one minute. I hadn't skated all summer, I, and and I'm on the ice one minute, and the Glenn Sather says, okay, we're having a scrimmage. And and Lee Fogelin and I took a run at each other, and I hadn't worked out all summer. He knocked me over like a bowling pin, bang into the boards, cracked my kneecap, 
and I remember I had to leave the ice after two minutes and I had tears and I just walked outside the building at training camp and I was crying. It just hurt me so much that I was finally back on the ice and now I got to sit it out. And So Chris, it, it, was, it was tough on me and I truly believe had I been healthy from day one and I didn't have that kind of a season, I never, I got hurt once I think in the world hockey, you know, you get your pull groins and you get those kind of average things. I broke my hand once in Houston, but after that, it was just, uh, I don't know why, but I got hurt way more than I ever did. And uh, I don't blame the coach, Glenn Sather, the general manager, Glenn Sather, for trading me. Because if you get somebody that's injury prone and you get a chance to move that person, you do that. So I got moved with the Rangers. It was an awesome, awesome experience. I loved the people in New York. I loved all the neighbors. And so it turned out to be a real good experience. But the Oilers won four or five Stanley Cups. There was a chance that I could have been part of that. So that's what I regret about having that black cloud over me. Yeah, I guess when someone tweets about it and puts it in uh, point form, you get to see really what how tough that year was for you. Yeah. Uh, we want to thank everyone for following you on social media, Cam Connor NHL on Twitter. You're also on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, if you have any emails or questions that you'd like to send, it's viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. And you just received uh, an email, and then now you've been calling back and forth a bit with Bart Wilson. Do you want to talk a little bit about reconnecting with him and who his brother is? Well, Bart Wilson was a defenseman when I was playing in Springfield in the American League. It was Bart's first year out of junior. He had a brother who had a hell of a career. Ben Wilson played for the Flyers and I believe Chicago Blackhawks. As tough as they come. I think he was 6'3", maybe 6'4". He had a mean streak. He was a good hockey player. He had it all. So his brother Bart was not as big as as Ben Wilson was. Bart had a mean streak in him. And he showed up every night, Bart. And he played the game hard. And he, he had a little bit of craziness in him that would keep the other team on their toes. And probably the craziest thing that I remember with Bart is somebody was doing something to him and swung a stick at him and Next thing you know, I probably saw the worst stick fight that I've seen. And these two guys were actually hitting each other over the helmet with the hockey sticks, like hard. And it cracked the helmets and, uh, you know, got a little out of control. Nobody was backing down and I was on the ice and uh, I just jumped Bart and knocked him over and laid on top of his head so he couldn't get get hit with the stick anymore. Um, Bart was a good kid. So he reached out to me recently. We, Like a lot of the players, you kind of go your own way. And unless somebody knows how to get a hold of the other person, you, you know, you always have good memories. But I was so fortunate because of these podcasts that uh, he reached out to me. And he lives in Victoria now. And uh, Bart, I'm going to have him on one day on the podcast. He only played one year in the American League. And then he said, you know what, I'm not going to make it. And he actually went back to school, finished his high school, and then he didn't think he had the ability, but he decided that he wanted to be a dentist and he was going to try. And Bart is a dentist in Victoria. 
and I believe he's been a dentist for 25, 30 years. My hat off to him. He was telling me his story. And even better than that, Bart loves his fishing. So he sent me some pictures of the fish he's caught and where he goes and uh, the boats that he owns. And he's asked me if I want to go fishing with him. So, yes, I told Bart, I am in. And so I'll have the time as long as this yeah, pandemic is lifted and we could uh, travel and so on and so forth. So if not, we do it next year. But uh, so, yeah, I reconnected with Bart Wilson and it, it was wonderful. Okay, so now we have a question from Gary on Twitter. And he says, Cam, when you played in the WHA, did you cross paths or swords with Gordy Gallant? He played a couple of years here in Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, and was a very popular player. So do you have any memories of him? Uh, I have a lot, especially when I was playing in Phoenix WHA. I was 20, 21, 22, right in that area. And he played for the Minnesota Fighting Saints, and our team always brawled that team. And, you know, that's the team that had the Carlson brothers, or in the movie they call them the Hanson brothers. Kurt Brackenberry was there. They had... They, they had in the movie, it was called Ogie Oglethorpe, but it was named, I think his name was Goldthorpe. Gordy, he had a Fu Man, and he was kind of a scary-looking guy. And I believe he only weighed 165, nah, maybe more, 170, 175. But he played like he was a 200-pounder. He showed up every night, and he was an aggressive player, and he was willing to do a you know whatever fighting he had to. So... Him and a guy on our team named Peter McTamee. And Peter weighed probably 20 pounds more than Gordy. And they would fight all the time. Peter would beat him, but Gordy never took a step backward. He'd try him again, and he'd try him again. And so, you know, I always admired the people that, uh, I don't know, if I got beat up bad, I might say I'm not ever going near that guy again. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But Gordy, he never did. He would come back again and say, let's go again. I can do better. So uh, my hat's off to Gordy. And Gordy, you uh, showed up every night. And for a guy like me, that was so important. Because unfortunately, at some of the teams, as I've mentioned in my other podcast, when we played the tough teams, there was very few guys that would show up. When we played the Swedes and the Finns, all of a sudden, these guys that wouldn't show up for the tough games, would be like playing like they're six foot five and they're tough. So Gordy, you showed up every night and you you gained my admiration. So way to go, buddy. And do you know what happened to him? What he's up to? Well, I don't. I, I really don't. Well, uh, I took a quick Google while you were chatting and uh, his Wikipedia doesn't say much, but he's actually on Twitter. Uh, and so... It says that he's a seafood consultant in sales and production, ex-pro hockey scout, had a sports talk show on the radio, and loves outdoors at my camp in Havelock, uh, New Brunswick. So it okay. uh, looks like he's in the Maritimes, and he's yeah, I think 69. Yeah, I think that's where he grew up, and so that's only natural that he'd head back there. So, yep, he was a, a good hockey player, but again, he showed up. And that's the most important thing in life for showing up. Okay, so we have another question. And this one is from Blackhawks2014. He says, great podcast, Cam. Enjoy your stories about hockey in the 70s and 80s. 
any recollection of playing the Blackhawks. And then he also adds, or classic Hawk players, such as Makita, Esposito, Magnuson, etc. I miss the old days at the old barn. Take care. I do have just a couple stories that uh, when we talk about Chicago Blackhawks, one of them was when I was with the Canadians, you go into, into, I don't know what the old arena, Chicago, whatever that arena was called. It was the old one. It was a, a tough place to play hockey in. Was it called Chicago Stadium? Yeah, could have been right. Yeah. It could have been right. I just don't remember. Uh, but it was, a, it was a rowdy spot. And uh, when you, you had to go off the ice to your dressing room, you skate you know, to the corners, and then the, the door opened, and you got to go down with your skates on. The steepest, narrowest little staircase you ever saw. Like you gotta, you gotta really turn your body sideways to walk down this thing. And I remember one night with the Canadians, and you know we didn't wear helmets back then. They had a uh, the grandfather rule, I think, that if you signed a contract before '79, you didn't have to wear a helmet. So I remember Yvonne Cornway, eh? he didn't have a helmet on, and uh, he was a couple guys ahead of me just going through the gate and he started walking down the stairs and some Chicago fan threw a beer bottle at him and it smashed just over his head against the cement wall and shattered. So that was a pretty rowdy spot. And so that's the one thing I remember. When I think about Chicago Blackhawks, that was the second time I broke my hand. There was a guy named Keith Brown. And I didn't know anything about him. He was a, a good-sized defenseman. And, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know if he dropped his gloves or I dropped my gloves and we square off. And Chicago had a captain named Terry Ruskowski. And Terry was a really good hockey player. I played with him in, with the Houston Arrows. And I played against them in junior. So Terry, he knew that for the most part I could handle myself. He obviously was playing with this fellow Keith Brown. And in his eyes, I think he thought I was going to wail on Keith Brown. So as we square, square off, I could throw with the left or right. And I started off with the left as quite often I did. And as I'm throwing the punch, there's actually, I got pictures of Terry running me in the middle of me throwing a punch. And he knocked me off balance. So my hand, instead of hitting him in the jaw or uh, it went off course, and I hit him in the helmet, and I broke my freaking hand again. And so I just got back from the cracked kneecap in Edmonton, and now I think within a game or two of me just coming back, I broke my hand. That's what's what I think about Chicago Blackhawks. They were a good team. I love their emblem. The Chicago Blackhawks emblem is priceless. As we all know, they were original six team, and uh, my favorite emblem on a jersey is the Minnesota Fighting Saints. I just love that. I actually had one of those jerseys that I bought when, everything, when the teams folded and somebody offered me too much money for it and I sold it and I kind of wish I never did but that was my favorite emblem and other than that Chicago Blackhawk, great emblem but what a, what a good team and I, I really don't know much about the players. You know you've mentioned Magnuson. I did watch a little bit. I didn't watch much hockey growing up at all. But whenever I did walk by the TV, Keith Magnuson was always fighting. And I forget who I talked to that played with the 
Blackhawks in those days. And I said, was he was he pretty tough? And they said he wasn't very tough. But I used the phrase he showed up. So Keith, he did a lot of fighting. And I'm sure he took a lot of whoopings. He showed up and he was somebody you better keep your head up because he, he was going to take a run at you. So I remember that Stan Makita. He was uh, a good, good hockey player that played a long time in his career. And I know with Stan, he's not known to fight you, but he would use his stick. He would stick you. So if he got pissed off at you, you could keep your head up, you know, because he was going to spear you. He was going to slash you. It was coming. So that's what I remember about Chicago Blackhawks. And I was going to ask you, I think we got off track once I asked about the empty arenas, but do you think it makes sense for the teams to start up in July after the players have been sitting around for a few months? You know, as a player, I would say, you know what, call it a wash, the year's over, start fresh in September. But I'm not Gary Bettman. I'm not the owners that are losing money. And so, you know, I guess it all depends on what side of the fence you're on. So with Gary Bettman, you know, he is saying, we're going to play, we're going to play, we're going to do our best to play. So he's going to do everything in his power and get as creative as possible to get some hockey games being played, get the television revenue, you know, which I have no vested interest nowadays. I would say just let it go and start fresh. But again, this depends... uh, you know, where your interest lies. And so with Gary, he would like to keep the game going in August if that's what it takes. And I know the Oilers fans are particularly choked after so many years of playing really poorly. And they're finally, uh, I guess they were guaranteed of a playoff spot. And now it looks like they're probably not going to play or maybe they'll play some shortened version of it over the summer. What about Dreisaitl? He's ahead of Connor McDavid in the scoring, and so he can see the finish line. That oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to win this scoring championship over probably the best player in the world, Connor McDavid. And you know what? Nobody will ever know what what would have happened. I mean, I think he still would have won it, but I don't know. I guess uh, I guess you got to declare him the scoring champ that year. I guess we'll just end it with a couple of player and a coach that you were teammates with and coached by that had passed away recently. It seemed like there was a couple of weeks where there was just a lot. Day after day, I would send you the links of people that were yes that I thought you probably played with. But two in particular, I know you want to talk about. The first, I guess, we'll bring up is Tom Webster. So for people that don't know of him, do you want to talk about who Tom Webster was and who he yeah. was to you? So Tom Webster, you know, the, the World Hockey Association, for those people that may not know, um, it was a rival league that lasted seven or nine years. They paid just as much as the NHL, and they wanted to, you know, become a viable organization, a viable league and eventually forced the NHL to merge with uh, the World Hockey. And as it worked out, four of the teams did merge with the NHL. Tom Webster played for a team, I think in those days it was called the New England Whalers. Tom wasn't a big forward, but he always had the gift to be able to score. Tom was fast. He was a good hockey player. I think he made his share of all-star teams in the World Hockey. And he did very, very well. 
I crossed paths with him as a coach. And when uh, I got sent to the Rangers farm team that year, it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I've talked on other podcasts about Tulsa. It was unbelievable experience. That uh, it was just the worst conditions that the general manager of the Rangers, Craig Patrick, who've always said he does not care about the farm team or anybody on the farm team. So he sent us to Tulsa. And the arena would only put ice in for the day of the game. And any practice that we would have in Tulsa was at a like a mall that had a skating rink. We weren't allowed sticks or pucks. We had to practice just with skates. And we had full gear on. And we used a Nerf football. So the defense in practice would be behind the net. And then for a breakout, they'd throw the football to the winger. Winger would skate a bit, pass it to the centerman, and and that's it. And then we'd come back after doing that, and we would uh, put our goalies outside against the arena, and we would shoot, like, tennis balls at them. And that's how they got to practice. And if we needed to use a stick and puck, we had to travel an hour and a half away to Oklahoma City. So we're on the road even when we weren't on the road. Then the worst thing at all was when we did get into that arena, and it was called Cow Palace. I don't know if that's right or not, but it was just an awful, awful place, and uh, the Zamboni wouldn't work half the time. It it was just pretty bad to put a hockey team in, and I don't know why Craig didn't really look into this. But uh, so the team ended up folding. Tom Webster was our coach through all of this. He always was a happy man, and he was uh, always trying to make everybody feel good. And, uh, you know, it was just not an ideal situation for a team to gel as a team when when you had those kind of circumstances. But Tommy was always happy and smiley, and, and, you know, we really liked Tommy. And he had days that he should have got mad at us, and he just shook his head, and he laughed. And he did get mad at us, but... uh, that's the year that we ended up folding after, I don't know, I'm going to say a month and a half, two months. And the choice was given to us by Craig Patrick. You guys can fold and go different directions. Some guys will end up on other teams. Or you can play every game on the road. Well, when you're a team, there's some people that may not have had a place to play. And we were a team and we cared for each other. So we had a vote. And all of us said we'll play every game on the road. Um, because it just wasn't fair that I knew I would have a home to go to. I'd have a team that would pick me up. But you know what? What about the guys that uh, that that wouldn't have somewhere to go? So we all decided, all of us, we we're going to stick together as a team. We'll play every game on the road. And we did. And Tom Webster was our coach. You know, when things are going well, let me back that up. When things aren't going well... You can really tell what somebody's all about. And he wasn't a grouchy. He just he just dealt the cards that he was dealt to coach that year. And uh, through his leadership, we came together as a team. We hung around on the road every day. We hung around together. We cared about each other. And uh, Tommy led the way off ice. And he was a great, great coach. And he coached the Rangers for a while when Phil Esposito took Craig Patrick's spot as the general manager, and I was so fortunate my career in hockey had ended and I started 
working in the computer consulting out of New York City. And for extra money, the Rangers hired me as a part-time scout. So I scouted all year long college division one. And that's all because Webby was the coach. And I asked if he would mind if I could get into the scouting ranks because I always wanted to stay in hockey. I mean, I really did. And Webby, he he said, by all means. And so I'll, I'll always thank Mr. Webster and uh, and his wife, Carol. She was a, another very, very good person. So, again, without I could go on and on about Webby and Carol. Just two really, really fine people. You know, I wish maybe I would have been able to connect with them. Like Bart Wilson reached out to me. I just wish I would have had a contact for Webby, just a phone and and just shoot the breeze and talk about the old days. Because, again, he's, he's a, it was a pleasure to know as an individual. Hockey secondary as a person, Tom was first rate. I'm just looking him up, and this is kind of interesting. It says, while coaching the Kings in a game against Detroit on November 16th, 1991, Webster became upset at what he felt was a blown call by referee Kerry Frazier. The Kings were ass- assessed an extra penalty, and Webster took a stick and threw it on the ice, hitting one of Frazier's skates. Webster was suspended for 12 games. Wow. Can, can you picture that happening? Yeah. You know what? In the heat of the battle, and you're coaching in the NHL, and there is a lot of pressure coming at the coaches from you know, his boss, and his boss is getting it from, you know, the people that own the hockey team. And it, it's passed all the way down. And so I could just see you when the game's on the line and there is a bad call that, you know, could put the game in jeopardy. I, I could just see somebody reacting. And, you know, I'm sure he didn't mean to hit, hit Kerry Fraser. Um, but it did hit a skate. So, you know, just that act. I think 12 games was a little excessive. But, you know, they don't allow you to criticize the referees, even if they are lousy. And a lot of them are lousy and inconsistent. So if you throw a stick on the ice and it and it, and it runs up on the ice against his foot, against his skate blade, they're going to set an example with you. So I'm sure that's what they did with Tommy. So did your paths ever cross after you left New York since he was an amateur scout for no. the Flames? No. I, uh, you know... If I was still in the game of hockey scouting, Tom and I would have crossed paths in in the various arenas, um, scouting the same games. But when you're out of hockey and they're still in hockey, it's a whole different life that they've got versus me doing a 9-to-5 life where I don't travel anymore. So our path never crossed again. And it it said that um, Webster died on April 10th at the age of 71. He had been reported to have had brain cancer. So. Well, you know, 71 is just too young. It's definitely too young. What do you do, you know, when you get a, something as awful as brain cancer? You just fight it. You fight the brave fight. And I'm sure he kind of knew that the odds were against him. God bless you, Tom. And uh, the second player that you played with that passed away on April 8th, so just two days before Tom Webster, was John Hughes. And I know that when I let you know that he passed, you mentioned that you were just talking about him an hour before. So do you want to talk a little bit about him? You know, I crossed paths with John. He played in the Ontario Hockey League. I played in the Western 
used to call WCHL, Western Canada Hockey League. So we never crossed paths in junior. But when I played in Phoenix, him and a gentleman by the name of Dennis Subject were owned by Cincinnati Stingers. They were both exceptional junior hockey players, but the Cincinnati franchise was still a year away from uh, coming into existence. So they needed somewhere to play for one year. So they came to Phoenix, and I got to know John. John was quite the character. He didn't say too much. You know, he'd come in in the morning, I remember, sleepy and tired, and he'd have this scowl on his face every single morning. But he was such a good guy. And so when he walked in with his scowl, because it was early in the morning, we started growling at him. And he had no choice but to start laughing. And so we'd start the day off growling at Husey. And uh, he was uh, a physical defenseman. He wasn't that, you know, he's not a six-footer or anything. But he played physical and uh, he could fight and he could hit hard in a fight. He played, you know, again that first year. And then I crossed paths with John in Houston, New York, Springfield. And there's one other city which I can't remember. But uh, the, the one thing I remember about Husey, he had a nice Corvette. And uh, I had a Trans Am back in those days and uh, living in Houston. He said, Cam, you're here all year round. You got a house. Would you mind if I keep my Corvette in your driveway? And then when I come back, you know, I, I could just take the Corvette from you. I said, oh, not a problem, John. He goes, but you got to do me a favor. You have to use it. Keep it running. My pleasure, John. I would love to. Well, back in those days, this would have been, he probably had anywhere, probably a 75, 76, 77 Corvette. And it was a classic look to him. And boy, you'd feel like a million bucks in this two-seater. Well, I drove it around Houston that summer. But I got to honestly say, I was never so happy to give a vehicle back. Back in those days, they didn't make cars very well in North America. They'd slap them together, and uh, they didn't have the quality assurance that the Japanese did when they put their Toyotas together. Those things lasted forever. And when you bought a car in North America, I remember just closing the door on John's Corvette. I was sitting in it, and I had the, the handle comes off in my hand. And then I had to figure out how to get it back on. And different things were always, always going wrong. And I didn't want John to come back and, you know, here's your car and these six things aren't working right anymore and these are broken. So it got to the point where, okay, I got everything fixed that was falling apart. And then I said, I'm not driving it anymore. Um, so I remember <laughs> I was pretty happy when Uzi took his Corvette back. John, you know, he was somebody that he had a good brain. Like John was a pretty smart guy. I think he was a better hockey player, in my opinion that some of the general managers that he played for, you know, or the other spot was in Edmonton is where I played with him. I don't know why. He kept getting moved or he wouldn't make a team. And I don't I don't really understand that today. John was a good, tough hockey player. And I remember I've got a, a picture of John and uh, Jack Carlson, who, you know, he was the person, like the Hanson brothers were really the Carlson brothers. And so he was one of the, two other brothers, three brothers on the team. And Jack was probably the toughest. And Husey and him would tangle. And John was tough. And I just thought he was such a good hockey player. But 
I don't know why the GMs never shared that opinion. But uh, John was a good person. When he smiled, like that smile of his was so big and broad, and you could see his eyes smiled with him. John was a, a really, a really a good person. And uh, the last time I crossed paths with John was when the Oilers brought every player back that had ever played for the Edmonton Oilers because their old rink, which was called Rexall Place, and it used to be Northlands before that, even if you just had one shift, they brought 100 players back. And so, you know, it was great for me to see. I hadn't seen Husey for a long time. He was there. My good friend Ron Chipperfield was there. It was so good to see these guys. And so with Husey, you know, uh, we talked and uh, he said, well, when, the, when we do all these ceremonies and they're all done, I'll come back and find you. And then he got a hold of me and he, he, he just said, you know what? He had somebody tell me that he had to catch a flight and we were running behind. So I never did get to say goodbye to John, but it was uh, very fortunate that, that I got to see him one more time. But I, I was shocked that he died. Again, you just don't know when your time is up. Like, you really, really don't. So, you got one life to live, so use it wisely. And that goes for myself, too. Chris, I love you. <laughs> Which is why I wanted to do this podcast with you, because I think it actually started when Dave Semenko passed away, because you were thinking of doing something with him, because the two of you just told great stories together and got along really well. And then out of the blue, he passed. Yeah. And then Roddy Piper passed, and we thought, well, you have some great stories about some people. If people haven't heard uh, some of the beginning episodes where you talk about encountering the mafia and Roddy Piper stories and, oh, yeah. you know, playing with Wayne Gretzky and Gordie Howe. So we thought it's important to to document these. I don't know if you thought we would get to 42 episodes. No, <laughs> no I, I can honestly say... You know, when we first started, I, 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 that's so long ago. How long have we been doing this? I think this is our third year. As people that have uh, listened since the beginning know that we do take breaks. <laughs> so it's yeah. not three years uh, weekly. but No, but, you know, in the beginning, I think you were all gung-ho, let's do it every week or something. And I say, Chris, I'm going to run out of stories. we got to do this every week. But somehow, you know, there's things that just pop in our heads or – different things to talk about. So it, it's actually been, you know, if it's been three years, it sure has gone by quickly. But you're right, Chris. Just a couple names you mentioned, like my buddy Roddy Piper and Dave Semenko. Like, you just don't know. As I've said about three times today, you just don't know when your time is up. So, you know, honestly, when Bart reached out to me and uh, these other guys uh, through my podcast that I played with, you know, please reach out to me. I, I would love to say hello to you again. Uh, I really would. I'm a little disappointed, though, because I, my good friend Rich Preston, who I played with in Houston, uh, he would talk to me that he ran into an old friend of mine that I played hockey with for a number of years, John Gray. And so he gave me John's number. And John, if you're listening, I reached out and left you a message and gave you my number, and you never called me back. So I'm still waiting, buddy. <laughs> well, on that note, who? what was his name? John Gray? John Gray out okay. of Boston. He lives in Boston. Okay. We, we put it out into the universe. Uh, our, our next episode will tell you if John Gray has returned your call. 
So until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cap.